Welcome to Divorce Explained, the podcast where we answer your questions and navigate the process of divorce together. Sharing real stories and personal experiences, this is your guide through it all. With your hosts, family law specialist Steve Benmore and divorce lawyer and strategist Leanne Townsend. To today's topic, which is supervised access. So if you want to go ahead and kind of Absolutely. set it up for our so, listeners, that'd be you great. You know, couples um, come together they meet, they date, some marry, some cohabit, some have children with plans to have children, some have children with no plans to have children. And in any event, couples will have children. Sometimes it's opposite sex, sometimes it's same sex. However, children come into this world, uh, most of the time, if not all of the time, they're a blessing to everybody involved. Um, But what is definitely the case is that unlike any device that you could buy at Best Buy, children do not come with an owner's manual. And so there is no knowledge, nor training, nor precondition that one has to know how to operate and raise a child. And as a result, people have children. And in some cases, both parents are extremely capable, competent, responsible, and they get on the job training day one. Some parents, one is and one isn't capable and responsible. And in some cases, they're both not responsible. But let's talk about the second category where there's one responsible parent and one not responsible parent. And then they split up or they may not have ever been together before. Either way, there's a child living with one parent and the other parent wants to play a role in the child's life. However, the primary parent has concerns about the other parent who wants to spend time with the children. And in some cases, the concerns are not really all that serious. They may be concerned about, you know, maybe they don't know how to change a diaper. Or they might be concerned about, well, you know, the child's got a gluten sensitivity and they want to make sure that person knows. Or they might know that the child needs a certain medication or a certain bedtime routine. And there's some communication issues to make sure this happens. But What if it's a situation far more serious than that? Like the other parent has an addiction or the other parent is an alcoholic or the other parent has some form of sexual improprieties that affect the safety of the child with them. Or what if the other parent is a flight risk? So in situations like that, there is a a safeguard available in family law all over the world. But in Ontario, we have the government of Ontario funding supervised access centers, and we also have some private sector service providers there as well. So what is supervised access? Supervised access is where a parent visits a child Sometimes not a parent, sometimes it could be a grandparent or an uncle or an aunt or a sibling. But most of the time, there are these places that the parent who may not necessarily be entirely capable and responsible for all the reasons that I just mentioned, will be able to spend time with a child under the supervision of a trained professional called an access supervisor. And we have them all over Ontario funded by the province of Ontario, taxpayers' money, that is. And then we also have private supervised access providers. So, Leanne, 
Have you had in your cases any situation where you either defended a request for supervised access or you asserted your client's insistence that there be supervised access for the child? Yes, I've had clients on both sides uh, of the equation. Um, so the first one where I've had a client or client, more than one client even where um, they had concerns regarding the safety and well-being of their child when they were with the uh, other parents. And so they were insistent that if access was to happen, that it had to be supervised. And um, I've had cases where um, Generally, the, the ones where I've had that is where the other parent had an, an addiction issue, um, you know, an, an approvable one, um, because that sometimes can be a problem in itself if, you know, one parent's alleging there's an addiction and the other parent's denying it. But, you know, in the situations where somebody's got, um, you know, arrested for drinking and driving and things like that, where, you know, it's, it's definitely, um, there's independent evidence of it. Um, I've had the parent insist on uh, supervised access. Um, usually it's uh, for a period of time. It's not, you know, forever. Um, I've also had clients where they were the person who had to have their access supervised. Um, that's not something I, um, you know, I think anyone ideally wants. People want to be able to spend time with their children and these access centers, as great as they are, um, you know, it's kind of a sterile, um, uncomfortable environment in, in a lot of ways for children to spend time with a parent. But if, um, if you're given the choice between no access at all or supervised access at one of these centers, my advice to a client is going to be um, accept the supervised access and, you know, build, build your parenting time, prove yourself, work on your relationship with your child and show that you're you know, capable of parenting properly and, the, you know, you're building that relationship so that, you know, there can be a, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel that the supervision will come to an end. And clearly if someone's dealing with an addiction issue, you know, if they get treatment and they provide proof of treatment and they continue to do the things they need to do, then that supervision will at some point come to an end. Uh, I've, I've had cases also where there's been supervised access because there was an allegation of child abuse um, in a very high conflict uh, divorce case. And, um, you know, whether the allegation was true or not, the allegation was made and a charge was laid. Um, and so my client, in order to have time with his children, had to have supervised access um, because he also had bail conditions that were restrictive of his you know, parenting um, time with the it, children as and well. And I want to clarify the word access. So for the last 50 some odd years, we used the words custody and access. Custody meaning where the children live uh, permanently, access being the rights of the other non-residential parent. But in March of 2020, when the Divorce Act and then subsequently when the provincial legislation changed to eliminate the word custody, we also eliminated the word access. For purposes of today, when we're referring to supervised access, really what we're referring to is the contact that the non-primary parent has with the child, uh, because the word access actually has been removed from the legislation. Uh, but for ease of reference, we're using the word access to describe the parenting time of the non-residential or non-primary parent. Now, with respect to supervised, and you, Leanne, have raised a number of interesting topics with respect to your experiences, because one of the issues is the situation where there's domestic violence between the parents, or a history of domestic violence, or a history of fear 
of domestic violence between parents. And in some cases, it's not that the access needs to be supervised. It's that the parents can't see each other or deal directly with each other, or they can't pick up a drop off where they're in each other's presence. So supervised access centers and supervised access providers can also provide supervised exchanges. Now, historically, this is going back many years, parents would sometimes use a police station to meet in order to pass the children from one to the other, because the idea being that nobody would do anything wrong at the front door of a police station. And for the most part, that's true. But social scientists, lawyers, judges, mediators, have all realized how horrible is it for a child to be passed between one parent and another at a police station. So that has gone the route of the dodo bird because it's just unhealthy for a parent to have a relationship with a child that commences and ends at the front door of a police station. So that is less likely, although I have to say, it still does occur. In some cases, there's supervised exchanges by a family member or a friend. Um, and in some cases, there's supervised access, not only by a family member or a friend, but in some cases, by the primary parent. And I've had cases over the years where the access is at a public library or at a McDonald's that has a playland or at an Indigo in the children's book section where the primary parent is sitting over there and then the child is with the other father or mother over there. And so the child has visual contact with the primary parent while spending time with the other parent in a setting where the child is not far from the other parent and therefore in a public setting, safe and secure, without anything untoward happening, like the child being abducted, the child being exposed to domestic violence, the child being exposed to drunkenness, or a person that is high on drugs. So there are so many versions of this, but the one thing that I wanted to uh, reiterate from what you said, Leanne, is that generally speaking, supervised access is a short-term remedy. It's not a permanent situation most of the time. There are rare cases where supervised access is permanent, but the, for the most part, they generally last either weeks or months. Rarely do we see supervised access for years. Um, and reason for some of that is like you just said, Leanne, which is the person who has the problems or the challenges seeks remediation, whether it's because they're in counseling, therapy, uh, drug rehabilitation, AA, and there's improvement to the point where there's no need for supervised access or supervised exchanges anymore. That's one reason for the change. The other one is, as children age, they become the best reporters of a problem. And we live in an era right now where, as it is, children have cell phones. And if a child at the age of, say, 11 years old goes with a parent who might be uh, um, reckless or might be drunk or might not be acting responsibly, the child can go to the bathroom and call the other parent and say, come pick me up. I don't feel comfortable. So we live in a very different world than the world that we lived in um, when children didn't have cell phones and uh, children weren't empowered to communicate. Now, 
we would never want to place the child in a position of being the reporter on a parent. But at the same time, do we also want to have a child grow up where they only get to see one parent at a supervised access center? Um, now, um, for the benefit of our viewers, supervised access centers in Toronto, and, and, and in the interest of full disclosure, I was on the board of Access for Parents and Children of Ontario, and I was its chair for a couple of years, uh, many, many moons ago. Um, I want our viewers to know that it's not jail. Uh, the supervised access centers in Ontario, certainly in Toronto, are City of Toronto daycares. So basically, when they're not used as daycares, we rent them out and we use them as supervised access centers. So they look very much like a nursery or a daycare. Um, in other parts of Ontario, uh, that the services are provided by, for example, community centers or Salvation Armies, it might have a different physical setting. But they're not scary places. They're just places that are interior, they're, they're closed. Uh, a parent drops them off, another one arrives at a different moment and meets the kids, the supervisor, brings the child into an intermediate room so the parents don't see each other. Uh, they, they, they stagger the times of pick up and drop off to avoid any potential complications at that. So there's all these different ways to ensure safety, but also to minimize any sort of anguish that might be associated with supervised access. Um, Leanne, have you ever been in a situation where um, your client is the one that is being alleged to be a danger and you have to have your conversation with the client about the use of a supervised access center. Um, you know, definitely. And, you know, it, I, my, my advice and, uh, is, you know, done on a case-by-case -case basis because in some cases my advice is going to the client is going to be that you should agree to this, um, you know, otherwise you're probably not going to get parenting time. And so it's the right thing. And an example of that would be the client I mentioned who had been charged with assault on the child. Um, he was not going to be, be able to see um, his children unless it was a, at a, in a supervised setting. Um, if it's something where, uh, you know, maybe I think my, my client is being falsely accused of something um, like having a, maybe both parties have an alcohol problem, but my client's the one being accused, but there's nothing to substantiate it other than the other spouse saying it in, in that type of situation, my advice, you know, might be not to agree to that. And I don't think a court will order it in the circumstances. So it's worth fighting. Because um, I have had situations, you know, like that, where the other spouse was trying to insist on supervised access, and we were able to get a court order that it did not need to be supervised. Um, I should just add as well on the topic of the supervision centers and, and whatnot, one of the challenges with them is that um, for the, the publicly funded ones, there is a long waiting list, um, especially depending on what jurisdiction you're in uh, to get in. Um, I recently, I have a client who was trying to get in one uh, in the Guelph area and it's, you know, it probably took almost close to a year for him to get to the top of the waiting list. So that was, you know, that's very long if you're not, if that's the only way you're going to be able to see your child. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, again, it may be a little different in, in Toronto or other jurisdictions. That's my recent experience with one, and it, it was a very long wait. Um, and I wanted to say that access centers can sometimes be like to somebody's advantage or to a parent's advantage. I mean, they're, they're already an advantage if you're not going to see your child, it's the only way you're going to have time with them. But they also take you know, notes of your visit with your child. So when you're there and you're interacting with your child, they take notes about how um, the interaction's going and how the child seems to be behaving, how you're behaving. And so if your, you know, former partner wants to make certain allegations about you um, or your relationship with the child, um, these notes could potentially be helpful down the road um, to, you know, show that those allegations are unfounded um, and, and help your argument that, you you know, you are behaving appropriately with the child, you're, you, the child's happy to see you, you interact well together, and, you know, maybe the supervised, uh, you know, parenting time can come to an end. So they, they can really be helpful and, for people in, the, in, fact, in that In fact, that's a very good point. In fact, that is a strategy. So when your client is alleged to be the perpetrator of violence or to be an addict or someone that is otherwise irresponsible with parenting, um, the supervised access notes can actually serve as your best defense because then you allow the independent supervisor to develop the notes, write the notes, build a book of notes, you know, four, five, six, six, ten visits later, you might have 10 sets of supervised access notes. And when you go to court and you go, these are the allegations that they are making. This is what the independent neutral supervisor wrote. There doesn't seem to be any, any reconciliation or relationship between the allegations and what actually happened. Um, and yet my client agreed to go to the supervised access center uh, because that was the only condition under which the primary parent would allow the access to occur. And it's a strong argument to the judge to say it's not needed. It never was needed, or if it was needed, it's no longer needed. Either way, it's ended, as opposed to what historically we've seen cases where one person says, oh, if I can't see my child on my own terms, I'm not going to see my child at all. That was a mistake strategically for the reasons that I just mentioned, not to mention the psychological error of actually not having time with your child. So it's a, it's a very smart move. I have one last question for you, Leanne, before we wrap up. You were a Crown attorney before, and there were cases, I'm sure that you dealt with, where somebody was charged, there was a child involved, and then there's bail terms, and the bail terms come out of a criminal court, and they mention supervised access. Can you, can you explain how does this happen? Yeah. It it's, um, it's one of the problems sometimes in the system is you can get a, a bail order that has certain conditions that might not be ideal in a family law setting, but there, there can sometimes be conditions that the um, offender uh, is only allowed access, supervised access, you know, with uh, his children or her children um, at, um, you know, a center, it might say, you know, that is um, organized by the, the Children's Aid Society or something like that. It might even reference a specific center. Uh, and then if you want to change the center, you, you, you have to get the, the bail condition changed. Um, you know, sometimes, like if someone is charged with an assault on their own child, for example, uh, there might be a bail condition that they're not to have any contact at all with their child. And that can be really problematic because a criminal case could take 
you know, a year or two years, you know, to eventually resolve or go to trial. And if you're not allowed to have any contact with your child for a year or two years, that's a long time uh, in a child's life. So those kind of conditions are not very good ones when they're, they're put, I always think they're put on by people who don't really think about the family court context or the child development context and what's best for the child. Um, so often they'll put a condition that, um, you know, access is to be consistent with a family court order. And I think that's the best way to go. Let family court assess um, how that parenting time should happen or if it should happen. The family court's in the position and mandated to, to decide what's in the best interest of the child. So they're far better suited to make that call than the criminal court or the crown attorney or the police officer when they're agreeing on or writing up conditions. Um, and it can, you know, it's, it can be hard to change a bail condition and it can be expensive. So, um, you know, somebody wants to make sure they get the conditions right uh, the first time so that they don't end up having to get something changed you, down the road. Uh, being on the receiving end of a client who hires me, who walks into my office with bail, with a recognizance of bail that lists the bail terms that say access or parenting time in accordance with family court order. It's not a law and order episode. I, I, don't, I don't just take that recognizance of bail and then tomorrow morning get a family court order. I now have to start a court application. The other side then gets 30 days to defend it. Then we have to have a case conference. Before you know it, it might be six months later. So uh, when the criminal court issues these bail terms, oftentimes I don't think they really have a handle on what's involved when they use language like parenting time by him or her in accordance with a family court order because it's not so easy to get. No, and a part of the problem too is that you know, normally in criminal law, um, if somebody is a victim of a crime, it's very standard that there's going to be no contact conditions. A, a perpetrator is not going to have contact with the victim, partly for the victim's safety, but also so that they can't try and obstruct justice or influence um, the victim of the crime to change their testimony. And so there's concerns about you know a parent maybe influencing a child. Uh, against testifying as to what happened. Um, but then, you know, the, the, on the other side of that, you have to balance, like, this is a parent-child relationship. And for most children, it is in their best interest to have some form of parenting time with a parent. And so, you know, the, the, the interest of the criminal court in protecting the case of the Crown and not having witnesses be tampered with um, is in conflict a little bit with the, the family court uh, issue of the best interests of the child. And it, it can play out in all kinds of different yeah, ways. Depending these are on very the tough issues, tough social issues and legal issues. Um, but uh, there you have it for our viewers, supervised access, supervised parenting in Ontario. We can talk about this for hours because it's a complex, complicated and very important subject matter. Um, but if you are involved in a a parenting situation and you yourself are concerned about the safety of a child being with the other parent or if you are being complained about as being the parent that is not capable of being alone with the child these are legal issues that definitely benefit from getting proper legal advice from from a lawyer and so uh, I, I certainly commend you to uh, seek out such legal advice before taking any steps that might place the child at risk or potentially cause uh, a prejudice to your legal rights so thank you for listening today. Yes, thanks everyone. We'll see you here again next week. Bye for now.
Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Divorce Explained. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to head on over to Instagram and follow at Steve Benmore and at Leanne Townsend Life for more. And if you're looking for specific divorce services, you can visit benmore.com and leannetownsend.ca. We hope today's episode made you feel informed and inspired as you move along through your divorce journey. Tune in next week for Divorce Explained.